Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Mamma Mia's Rob Farmer and Claire Stevens about leading a business in the shadow of its founder. It's like a cult of personality. Like, who is this Mia Friedman? How its research into Aussie women can help marketers. Kind of a real just reminder of uh, not to move away from the fundamentals when there is so much short-term distraction. And its commitment to diversity. We are very big in commissioning and getting a really diverse range of writers. But first, the week's topics. Bauer exits Australia with sale to Mercury Capital. How long will COVID-focused advertising resonate with consumers? The Amazing Race announces its return. And the story behind the industry's most talked about job ad. First up this week, a rumour that's been hanging around Bauer for several years has finally been confirmed. The publisher announced this week it was selling its Australian and New Zealand assets to private equity, handing their portfolio over to Mercury Capital. Hannah, the staff at uh, Bauer and PacMags have been through a lot this year with the delayed acquisition of PacMags, various stand downs, lots of redundancies, a crashing ad market. It must have been a fairly jarring announcement, despite all the rumours, to have to deal with another round of of changes and the fear and uncertainty that comes with that. Yeah, it would be. It was only a month ago that they finally finished the merger between um, PacMags and Bauer. And as you'll remember, I think we saw about 150 job cuts through that process that was following a number of job cuts that had led up to that process. So overall, there's been a lot of job cuts. Um, I spoke to somebody (laughs) from Bauer during the week for an interview, which may not see the light of day now. Um, And she told me they were meant to be back in the office on July 6th and was very excited for that prospect. And I do wonder what that actually means now that, you know, I don't know whether um, Mercury Capital has taken over Park Street. I know Park Street has been a bit of a kind of thorn in Bauer's side in terms of its size and the value behind it. So maybe that won't be some part of the merger. But I think it must be really hard considering the poor staff at Bauer are like, okay, we've made it through millions of job cuts. We've made it through several mergers. We're at the other side of COVID. Everything's starting to kind of come back together. Oh no, now we've been sold. Yes. And there's no official word on how much they've been sold for, but the, the rumoured figure is is pretty low. So Bauer agreed to pay $40 million for PacMags. Uh, and there's rumours that actually Mercury Capital bought the combined entity for not a whole lot more than that. So for the Bauer family, which is based in Europe and bought uh, what is now Bauer Media in Australia for hundreds of millions of dollars, I'm not sure they'd see it as an entirely successful financial exercise. Yeah, so that, um, I don't know if it was ever confirmed, but back in uh, 2012 when Bauer did purchase ACP, it was for a rumoured $500 million, which, you know, then took on the $40 million for PacMags, which is a little stark in comparison, and you've got yourself a $550 million mistake. I think also what's really interesting is the fact that New Zealand has been kind of wrapped up in this almost as like a little bit of a bonus for the purchase. New Zealand, obviously, they kind of closed earlier this year and there was that weird thing where they were like, oh, we offered to sell it to the government for a dollar and they wouldn't take it. (laughs) Jacinda Ardern would not return our calls. And so, yeah, altogether, I would be really interested to find out how much it went for. I think um, from what I understand, Bauer is privately owned and obviously Mercury Capital is a private equity company, so they don't really have any reason to ever tell us. So we may never know, but I don't think you're wrong in it being quite a low amount. Yeah, I asked the CEO of Bauer Media in Australia, Brendan Hill, uh, how much, and he wouldn't tell me. And, you know, the deal had only been inked on the morning that I was talking to him. And, you know, so he also couldn't tell me what they're going to rename the company to. It obviously can't maintain the Bauer name because 
Bauer Media is continuing to operate in other international markets. So they'll have to come up with a new name that uh, Brendan says will represent like the new entity. It was He said it was never about Bauer taking over PacMags. It was about them coming together and starting again. So he's he's got to do that and he's also got to contend with the perception that private equity and investment firms only come in to sort of slash and burn, cut things down so that they can then sell it for a profit in a few years or keep only the big profit drivers. Brendan was pretty keen to shut that down with me and say, no, they're going to invest. They're very committed. This is a good move for us. Now, obviously, he's going to say that on the morning of the deal. He's not going to say, no, this is terrible and there's more carnage to come. Uh, But it will be interesting to see how that actually unfolds because I know that there is fear that there could be more job cuts, could be more mag closures, could be more synergies and and buzzwords and whatnot that I'm sure the Bauer staff are not looking forward to. Have we actually had confirmation that Brendan is going to stay with the business? I did ask him that uh, question. So Hannah, it was uh, your day off and I had to ask him (laughs) uh, directly, are you sticking around? And and again, I mean, he would say this, he said yes. He said he's he's staying and that the whole sort of senior executive uh, leadership team is staying and that Mercury Capital will be spending the first few months getting to know everybody, getting to know the business, sort of taking a back seat and getting their head around it and will then be sort of investing in it is, uh, is how the story goes. So I, I guess we'll see uh, how that works as we continue to deal with the economic impacts of, of COVID as well. I think um, it's quite interesting if you flash back to just a couple of weeks ago now in what has been quite a wild couple of months um, and him saying, you know, those eight titles that had been suspended and that there was absolutely plans to bring them back and there's nothing to worry about there. But I think what will be really interesting is whether the big international publishers like Condé Nast that have got their contracts out for their titles that Bauer publishes whether this sale will just see them pull those contracts because we're already kind of seeing rumours about that. So I think it'll be quite interesting if they are willing to deal with a private equity company. Next up, how COVID-19 is being reflected in advertising creative. We now turn to Adland, which has been undergoing somewhat of a transformation due to the impact COVID-19 has had on production, purchasing behaviour and consumer attitudes. Over the last couple of months, we've seen campaigns take shape in a number of different ways, probably starting with all of those horrific, we're here for you and in these unprecedented time campaigns. But now we're sort of seeing COVID and lockdown-related themes in advertising in more sort of subtle and everyday ways. So, Zoe, how's COVID being played out in in ads in Australia a few months down the track? Yeah, so like you mentioned, Zoom has been a big method of production. Uh, Advertising agencies have leaned on over the last couple of months. Uh, Production's probably been the biggest hit to Adland because of COVID, how ads are made. We've seen brands leverage things like animation, filming with drones, and of course, yeah, Zoom. This week we saw Optus leverage FaceTime in their Good Day a Day campaign, which launched back in April with uh, athletes and sports media personalities like calling each other on FaceTime. And that was sort of in lieu of sport, not really happening due to COVID-19 and as that campaign expanded it sort of brought in more Australian media personalities calling each other over FaceTime in four-minute videos. This week the campaign wrapped up with Ariana Huffington calling our former Prime Minister Julia Gillard in what was four of the best minutes of my week and in that they talk about the progress of um, Ariana Huffington's new business Thrive which is a corporate wellness business and also Julia Gillard's debut on TikTok. So that's sort of one way that brands and agencies have been bringing through new platforms to create ads. Another thing I think will be really crucial going forward for brands in terms of how COVID has affected the way marketing will take place 
in the future is earned media ideas that form the basis of their campaigns. So this week we saw Carlton United Breweries kick off their pub reopening ceremony, which is sort of like the passing of the Olympic torch, only this time the torch has a beer tap attached and it will tour Australia and obviously get media attention in the different communities that it visits um, and the pubs that they are supporting. Yeah, so that one uh, also used uh, Mick Malloy, who's a bit of a radio and TV personality, and I think he took the the torch onto the set of Sevens, uh, the front bar, his uh, AFL program, so it's pretty easier to, to generate media when uh, when you've got those kinds of of tie-ups. I, I think it's interesting as well that as well as these sort of big ideas like getting a former Prime Minister onto a, a FaceTime and, and like using Mick Malloy to get people talking about the pubs again as if they weren't talking about the pubs enough, it, it's creeping in more subtly uh, with the likes of Hyundai who've released some sort of floor plans of, of houses uh, showing the the GPS routes that we've all been taking, which is as sad as like from bed to desk, from desk to kitchen, kitchen to bed, and sort of showing how much our, our lifestyles and our movements and our ideas of road trips have changed. And it, it has, you know, then the open door taking you out to the, to the beautiful sunshine and, and your car that can now take you beyond your kitchen and and your desk. Hannah, do you think that would resonate with consumers or do you think it will do you think it's too soon like it still hurts a little bit that we're reminded that we've been in this horrific situation? I don't know. I was actually thinking about this the other day because we've gotten I remember when lockdown started and there were all these ad campaigns that were being forced to be pulled because they were you know, obviously reflecting things that we were no longer allowed to do. And now it's quite normal for a, quite a large proportion of the ads on TV to be about the lockdown or to be, you know, like I think 7-Eleven's doing a campaign at the moment where they're kind of taking the piss of all the stuff we do in lockdown. And I don't know whether I love it. I really feel like it just keeps reminding me that I am stuck in the house and cannot go to the pub. But I also think like the point of advertising is to kind of catch the vibe of the world, country, nation. And um, so I think, you know, the fact that these brands are kind of getting on top of that and putting out what they think is a bit of a temperature gauge from consumers is probably best for them. I mean, what's the alternative? Like they just pretend we're not doing this. Well, that's right. I mean, strategy is based on consumer insights and at the moment, consumer ins- insights are all going to be based on COVID-19. And you're right, like we have seen really quick shifts in advertising from like ads getting pulled because of, you know, for sensitivity reasons. And then a lot of those Zoom ads coming out, tapping into like feeling sympathetic and we're here for you. And now I think we're shifting into like a space of humour. I mean, a couple of weeks ago we saw the ad from Aldi, which was sort of tapping into panic buying culture and the Hyundai one also brings in that sort of a kind of as a consumer self-deprecating I think for want of a better word kind of humor and I think that's the direction that uh, we see ads going in over the next couple months. If I never have to see an ad backed by emotional music with a, a video <laughs> call with multiple faces ever again I I will I'll be happy. I'm so sick of video calls. We're even doing this podcast over a video call. And when I can actually see you guys in person instead of your weird little square heads, I think it will be (laughs) something quite exciting. Next, programs return to production as COVID-19 restrictions ease. Have you checked out Mumbrella's agency report card yet? Exclusive to Mumbrella Pro, it's an in-depth analysis of the 25 most talked about creative agencies in Australia, with two new reports dropping every week. Big Red and BWM Dentsu are the latest report cards released on Mumbrella Pro. Other agency report cards already released include TBWA Sydney, CHE Proximity, DDB Sydney, The Monkeys, Host Havas, Special Group, Saatchi and Saatchi Sydney, 
BMF, Thinkabell, Cummins and & Partners and Ogilvy. To see how the expert panel scored them all, take the Mumbrella Pro free trial today. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash pro for more information. The COVID-19 restrictions have effectively ceased production across the television industry over the last few months, but we're starting to see the release dates return for some of these shows. The Amazing Race Australia was one of the shows which went through several changes during the pandemic. First, it was going to be a domestic-only race, then it was paused entirely, but now it's back, trying to recruit contestants for this domestic-only race. Hannah, what's happening on on the other side of things? We we can obviously see from the announcement this week from Network 10 that the Amazing Race wants to get people climbing the Harbour Bridge and counting the churches in Adelaide and foraging through the national parks in the Northern Territory. What else are we are we waiting on or, or what else might start to come back? I feel like I can remember when all this began as really taking the piss about a domestic-only amazing <laughs> race, and I think that was a little uh, too soon for us. And I think now anybody will just be, as we said before, desperate to leave the house and, God, if there's a pub along the way, I will take part. Um, but we're still waiting on quite a few other shows. Australian Survivor was paused. We obviously did have one season this year, the All Stars season, which had been filmed before COVID-19. But um, we are still waiting for what was promised to be a second season this year. That usually films in Fiji and of course they can't get to Fiji so I don't know what's going to happen there maybe they will film it here maybe they'll just hold that one off till next year anyway um Tenet I mean there's also- no reason there's no reason they couldn't film it here there was one of the uh, earlier seasons of American Survivor was filmed in Australia I believe it was the one that Amber was in Amber who ultimately ended up being in a Survivor power couple with Boston Rob so I mean I don't know that we need to to go international when uh, as you know the producers of the amazing race say you know there's there's plenty of there's plenty of things here um, you're on got- that amazing race hype train and I love it for you yeah <laughs> 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 um, I think also the UK version of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here films in Queensland. So you're right, there are options here. Um, Five Bedrooms was held back by 10. We haven't heard anything about that one yet. Um, Seven cut quite a few shows, which I don't know that we know they're back on yet. Um, Holy Moly, which was going to film in the US. Um, Australia's Got Talent, which I don't know if it's filming again yet, and SAS Who Dares Wins, which was going to film in New Zealand. So obviously those two, or I think was already filming, but had to be paused. So obviously those two international productions are unlikely to get going again. Um, but then we've seen some other stuff start to come back. The Living Room has come has is going to come back to us shortly uh, with appropriate social distancing, and I believe they did manage to film The Block, although I don't know when that is set to air. Well, speaking of all of these changes, Zoe's just held up a note to the camera that says uh, Five Bedrooms is back in production. Not not sure why she felt the need to resort to pen and paper when she has a microphone in front of her, but I'll I'll speak I'll speak for her that uh, that hot tip comes courtesy of of Zoe Wilkinson. Uh, I've noticed that Ten has started pushing again uh, Bachelor in Paradise, which was filmed yeah. quite a long time ago and and was done. And then they paused it and sort of moved MasterChef forward and that will be wrapping up soon, I'm guessing, and they'll have to rely on Bachelor in Paradise because I know that Bachelor was one of the victims of COVID and there's been some spicy, spicy rumours coming out about weird Zoom dates and and girls (laughs) having to dress up and, and, and do their dates over a computer, which honestly I couldn't think of anything worse, fancy dress and dating on a computer. Uh, but I do think if it ever does get to to make it to our screens, it will be fascinating to see that switch from when they, you know, go from pashing on all the time to suddenly being separated by a computer screen. If we end up, like, when all this content ends up on 10 Play in, like, five years' time and somebody's going back to binge all the Aussie Bachelors, they're going to get to this year and just be like, what happened? <laughs> Why did everything go so horribly wrong? And in terms of what is on at the moment, uh, obviously the AFL and, and NRL are back and Seven's been very happy with how the AFL is going and that's been a, a good news story for Seven. 
Big Brother, Hannah, is that a good news story for Seven or does it depend who you talk to? I would say that Big Brother does depend who you talk to. Um, They did have a very good night the other night. I think it hit up to 800,000 and it did come in pretty strong when it debuted a week ago. Um, But it's kind of been coming and going. So the debut was 930,000, which is obviously a pretty spectacular result for Seven, especially as they've had some struggles over the last uh, couple of months. But it kind of come, you know, then it slipped down to 500,000. Then, of course, it bounced back up to 800,000. I think Seven uh, are currently using a similar line to the line that 10 likes to run out every now and then, which is we're only playing in the demographics. But I would also point out that on the nights that Big Brother goes up against MasterChef, MasterChef quite often beats it in the demographics. So it's a hard one to measure. But I think definitely if you spoke to the people at Seven, they would say that it was performing exactly as they had hoped it was would perform. Um, and it's doing a lot better than some of their reality was last year. So, you know, it really depends what metric you're using, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the only way is up when the benchmark's pretty low. But I, I do know that they're, they've been talking a lot as well about how well it's performing on BVOD and, and things like that because I guess the difference with Big Brother this time around is previously you really had to watch it live because there was live voting, there was last-minute changes to who was going to be saved and evicted. So much was contingent on you being there in the moment and being part of that moment. But it's all pre-recorded. It's not live. You can't stream them. Uh, you can only watch the episodes that are given to you that happened already. So I guess it might become one of those shows that people binge or if they miss, like they'll jump back into it rather than seeing it as like they need to be home at 7.30 to watch this program so that they can talk about it at work the next day. I mean, we're not even at work the next day, so they don't (laughs) need to. Yeah, it's been so long since Big Brother was on the TV before and the landscape was very different back then. And it's also a bit of a different show, really. You know, it's not so much focused on the eliminations anymore. There's like challenges and all sorts. So yeah, I think it's a bit hard to kind of compare it to how it used to be, of course. Um, but I also think, you know, there are so many different things happening on TV at the moment. Um, it can be hard. For example, if you look at last Sunday night, I think there was a kind of a really big clash, the kind that we hadn't seen in a little while. We had both NRL and AFL, but we also had, you know, MasterChef and the big reality shows too. And still nine managed to come out on top of that battle, but it was tightly fought. So yeah, it's an interesting time at the moment. I think it'll be even more interesting when we finally get the domestic Amazing Race Australia. Next, are you Australia's next top senior executive assistant slash office manager slash professional governess? While most companies in the media and marketing industry are currently on a hiring freeze, for those of you hunting for a new role, there was one option that popped up this week. Ultimate Edge Communications posted a seek ad looking for a senior executive assistant slash office manager slash professional governess. Some highlights of the EA slash PA role description include an assurance that while the role isn't 24-7, it also isn't 9 to 5. It's a vocation and a mission, but not a job. And a note that Ultimate Edge's corporate clients would not expect visible or excessive tattoos, body piercings, fashion, and other similar appearance-orientated statements. Viv, you spoke to Alicia McCall, founder and CEO of Ultimate Edge and the author of this job post. How did that go? Look, this started out as just a bit of something funny for for us to to talk about. Uh, You know, we we were sent the job ad. There was a bit of outrage on on Twitter about some of the implications behind it. You know, the the language in the job ad was pretty extreme in what it required from you and the level of dedication it expected. And reading between the lines, it did feel like this ad could be asking you to not have children and to not have any interests outside of work and to take short breaks and not really get your legal entitlements and and go above and beyond and uh, basically, you know, be a slave was how some people were were interpreting this ad and and what they were skewering it for. We just did a bit of a funny write-through of, look, how ridiculous this is. Uh, 
I wasn't expecting it to go off as much as it did. So people who are now coming at me saying, why are you giving this airtime? Well, we're giving this airtime because of supply and demand, baby. Uh, we we did the right through of, of this job ad as a bit of a joke. It went crazy. People wanted to know more. And then the CEO of the company, uh, Alicia McCall, reached out saying she wanted to tell her side of the story. And whilst I wouldn't be inclined to give this kind of thing more oxygen because more, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there's other things happening uh, both in the wider world and even in our own world. You know, it was the same day that Bauer sold that that I was having to deal with this. But I felt it was only fair that, you know, she's copying so much criticism online and she wants to talk. Well, then, you know, we'll, we'll let her talk. Uh, what I would say is I don't think her perspective on this job ad and her perspective on what she's requiring of people has convinced anybody. Uh, she really doubled down on the idea that she is a working mum, she is busy, she needs help, and she doesn't want people who are only half committed to her, her family, her company, her job, and her team. So she framed it actually, some of the comments on Mumbrella and comments on other online platforms as bullying rather than sort of taking the opportunity to acknowledge that perhaps she'd upset people or perhaps it was indicative of a, a wider problem in Adland with how we treat people and what we expect them to do. But, Brittany, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts here. The ad never went so far as saying you can't have children. It never went so far as saying, you know, please be unmarried and single and be available for me all of the time and, you know, I'll I'll pay you by some weird bonus structure. So what are the legalities here when it comes to job ads and, and the sorts of things that this ad seems to be implying about people? I have many thoughts. Um, but yeah, let's start with the discrimination element, I suppose. So it's a word that's tossed around a lot, but there are kind of very limited grounds upon which you can discriminate against someone whether or not it's in a job ad or an interview process or once they're already in the workplace. So those grounds include, among other things, race, age, sexual orientation, disability, family or carer's responsibilities and pregnancy. So I'd point out here, as you said, that the job ad used very gendered language. So people pointed out that it was asking for a governess, which is obviously a word for a woman in that position, and in the follow-up interview with you, Viv, Alicia did refer to the people who've submitted applications so far as YouTube ladies. And I think she tossed a mention of men in at one point, but it seemed quite clear that she was looking probably for a woman. Uh, it also said that personal responsibilities must be minimal for an applicant to be suitable and that there are very few breaks. So when I read through that, it raised red flags in terms of not just people with family responsibilities, carers' responsibilities, women who may be pregnant in which, you know, short breaks might not be feasible, but also people with disabilities, either mental or physical. It, it struck me that you could definitely make the argument that that was quite ableist language to say you can't have other responsibilities and you can't take breaks, essentially. So, look, I'm sure that should someone who applied or wished to apply sought legal advice about that, there'd be a very enterprising lawyer who could, who could mount that argument. But in terms of the tattoos and the piercings and the smoking statements, this is kind of a really interesting area because there isn't really protection on those grounds so every now and then you'll see a piece in the mainstream newspaper about you know people that are getting turned down from job applications because they've got tattoos and they don't really have any recourse so whatever you're talking about when it comes to those things if it's discrimination it has to link back to one of those grounds so if, for example, you were um, an Indigenous New Zealander, a Maori person who had tattoos because of that cultural background and you were turned away from a job because of your tattoos, then you could argue that it's racial discrimination. But, yeah, the, it, it just doesn't sit right, the, the, the language around it. It feels like 
she really wants a lot more than an executive assistant. She wants kind of a nanny, an executive assistant, a full-time employee, but not a full-time employee who works 40 hours a week, a full-time employee who works, you know, up to 16 hours a day. And that's fine if you're a business owner or someone who has equity in a business. But when you're an employee, even if you're one getting paid $150,000 a year, which was kind of the scope that was being touted, you you can't be expected to just be on call 24-7. You know, she one thing that um that I kind of paused and took stock at was the part where in the interview she mentioned that, you know, she some of the applicants she's had do have children and that they are looking for flexibility and that, you know, they can cook their kids dinner and put their kids to bed and then log on online after that and that, you know, that was a good thing. And I'm just like, no, that's not what flexibility means. That's not not what Sheryl Sandberg's talking about when she says to lean in, which, you know, Sheryl Sandberg was quoted by her in this interview. And yeah, there seems to be a real gap between her requiring support, which I don't think any of the commenters were kind of suggesting that working mums or mums in her position don't need a level of support, whether or not that be, you know, nannies. I spoke to Amy Buchanan, the CEO of OMD a few weeks ago, and she was saying that, you know, the thing that's gotten her through as a CEO working at home during this time is because she has a nanny and and support and help with her kids. So nobody's suggesting that that isn't an okay thing and that working mums shouldn't be given the absolute best shot possible at succeeding. The issue is, is that it feels like this brand of quote unquote feminism is that to get support, I need to exploit somebody else. And that just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. So some commenters have since um, voiced their opinion, uh, which shockingly comes at me for for going uh, too soft in this interview but I mean my only response to that is I can't I can't change the answers that she provided you know uh could I have pushed back more yes but would I have ended up on the phone all evening in my own time when trying to do an article about how doing things in your own time isn't sustainable yes I would so you know we just wanted to to give her the the opportunity to talk and see 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 what she thought but she really really did uh double down on it and say that she's not sorry, she's got nothing to apologise for, the job isn't for everyone, uh, but there is someone special out there who will want this job and will want to help her navigate, uh, you know, through COVID and, and out the other side. But a lot of people also feel like it's just indicative of the state of Adland and, and what we expect from people and actually that perhaps Alicia McCall, problematic though she, the ad may be, is actually saying things that other companies do, but she's just actually put it in writing and and being a bit more blatant about the exploitation that she's requiring. Yeah, to that point when this did first pop up, there was a part of me that was like, oh, God, this is satire and we're going to run it and then look like absolute idiots. Um, quick question, though, was the job ad not taken down at some point? Yes, it was. So... It was removed actually. So when I spoke to Alicia McCall, uh, she said that she pulled it after backlash uh, from Mumbrella. That's not accurate uh, because by the time I went to write about it, it had already been pulled. I just did some very crafty internet magic and found the original text of the ad. Uh, so I think maybe she pulled it because of backlash on Twitter because it definitely was circulating there first. I don't pretend to have found that ad or, or uncovered it. She did also say, though, that, uh, you know, she was quite far down the recruitment process, so it was a good time to pull it, but it is also back up online now with slightly less ridiculous demands. One of the demands in the earlier iteration of the ad was, um, you know, your own personal credit card with a set limit. So I guess the idea being like you're going to be spending things uh, and you need to be in in a certain financial position. And one of the things also was a credit check. I mean, I just cannot imagine. Imagine if like we did credit checks to employ people in 
you know, in, in a job like this, um, some of some of you are pulling faces, some of you are looking fine, but I <laughs> some just of us thought look very smug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so some of you have money and some of you don't, is what I've gauged from those facial expressions. But the ad is back online with slightly less uh demanding requirements, but is still uh still right up there with with one of the longer and uh more polarizing job ads that I've seen. People are asking for an installment number three where I interview the successful EA. Uh, Personally, I'd like to see this story go away. But again, I guess it will come back to supply and demand. And if if people do think it's indicative of of what's going on in the industry and what needs to be stamped out, then there is a, a wider issue here. You know, it's not just about one woman. It's not just about her individual situation and what she needs. It's about the the culture of expectation and and the culture of exploitation and and how we deal with that. Because sometimes I know that Brittany alluded to this, like we can throw around the flexibility thing, but it's actually exploitation masquerading as flexibility. And you think you're getting a really good deal because you're allowed to have a dinner break and hug your child, uh, but it's perhaps not as flexible as you think. I think that's the danger about attaching a salary that upon first glance looks really attractive too because look I've never been an EA I don't know what the market's like for EA salaries but you look at a range of you know 100 to 150k which is quite the range but you think okay wow yeah like that could be a really decent income for me I could really have a career here but you know I I used to work in law firms and that is literally law firm 101 and then you know finally after the royal commission into banking it started to be revealed how hard these top tier firms were pushing, particularly, you know, lower paid and lower level employees and the sorts of burnout and mental illness, people sleeping in offices, people working, you know, yeah, 16, 18 hour days and barely getting enough sleep. It's not sustainable, but it's also not the sort of thing that we should be okay with if you're a business owner, if you're an employee in the industry. And so if it is happening at holding companies, which I'm sure it is to an extent, I think that it's, you know, time to really question whether or not that's the environment in which good work gets produced, let alone if that's an environment which encourages good people to work for you. Yeah, it can be surprising what practices still exist and it will be interesting to see which ones rear their head again as businesses grapple with the recession and and some of the freedoms they think they've been given by the government with stand downs and with changed work arrangements as we navigate covid-19 i know when i was going for a job years ago uh not not this one i should be clear and it's not a job that i ever took so you won't be able to find them on on my linkedin but i was asked uh when i was going to have children uh, and I said to them, oh, I'm just going to give you a minute to reconsider that question because it's illegal. I thought that would be quite a strong warning. Uh, even though I dropped the word illegal, they they kept going. You know, they were like, well, no, I mean, you, you're a woman of a certain age. I'm sure, I'm sure you're planning it. Uh, and, you know, we need to know we're a small publishing company, so we'll need to factor that into our decision. Uh, that sort of prompted a bit of a rant from me about, how I could uh, tell you I'm never going to have children and then go and have a one-night stand and, and fuck up their whole publishing operation. But despite all of that, uh, they still offered me the job and they saw no problem with with asking me that and asking me if I had a boyfriend, asking me if I had a partner, all sorts of heteronormative narratives about what what a woman would do with her life and their their belief that they were entitled to know that. So I wonder uh, as businesses do what they can to try and survive this pandemic and the downturn, what sorts of questions and practices we'll start to to see coming back. Next up, Mumbrella's content director Tim Burrows and I speak with Mamma Mia's Rob Farmer and Claire Stevens. Joining us now on the Mumbrella cast is Mamma Mia's Rob Farmer and Claire Stevens. Rob is Group Director for Marketing and Commercial Partner Solutions, and Claire is the editor. Also with us is Mumbrella's Tim Burrows. 
And the main reason Rob and Claire are joining us is to share some research and insights into how consumers are thinking in the COVID world. Um, just before we get into that, Claire, I just wanted to cover off a headline about Mamma Mia uh, from this week that made the news. Uh, you've just axed broadcaster Sonia Kruger from your beauty podcast. Why was that? So we did that after um, significant feedback from our audience led us to understand that it wasn't the right choice um, or the right moment. And so we wanted to avoid further upset to our audience um, and to Sonia at what was a really um, traumatic time. And um, I suppose just 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 reading the story without knowing the background, the, the thing that I guess confused me was the, the the whole issue blew up from a, a, something Sonia Krug had said on air back in I think 2016 that Australia should stop allowing Muslim immigrants. That was highly controversial at the time. Was looked at by the authorities. Um, but Mamma Mia still gave her the gig on the podcast. So why only now decide that those comments were unacceptable? I think what it was um, was that. Because we um, were having her in the context of Big Brother, like um, coming on and and she's in the media for Big Brother at the moment, you know, and and it was about the beauty space. We were um, once once we sort of got some feedback from our audience that they had found it upsetting and um, and distressing to to have that voice platformed at this time. It was it was then that we realised that we had made. Um, a decision that might not have been particularly sensitive. And the decision was um, obviously to protect our audience and to respond to something that they were hurt by and also um, to protect, to, to make sure that um, Sonia Kruger wasn't, wasn't coming under, it, it wasn't kind of coming back into the spotlight for her. And speaking of which voices you give a platform to, at a time like this when we are trying to make more of an effort to platform minority voices and, and let sort of different communities speak for themselves rather than be spoken for. What sort of work or considerations are you doing in that space to make sure that Mamma Mia has diverse voices and the sorts of voices that your audience wants to hear from? So we have uh, been very conscious of this for a long time and so um, even in our podcast, you'll see that uh, the voices in our podcast suite are always um, really diverse, different ages, um, people of all different backgrounds speaking about all different issues. And we do the same thing on the site. And um, if, if you have a look in the last, especially in the last uh, sort of week when these conversations have been happening, we've been really conscious of giving the mic to other people and giving the mic to people who have lived experience of what's um, of issues around race and that can really give their own firsthand account of how this is affecting them. So we are very big in um, commissioning and getting a really diverse range of writers to write for us and that's front of mind for us and especially will be um, going down the track. Well, Rob, let's um, talk about the research, one of the reasons we're chatting. Um, what do you think right now are the key insights for marketers in how consumers are changing as we you know, enter what I think people are beginning to agree now is a recession. Yeah, well, we we commissioned some research amongst our audience to hear what they had to say about this. We were comparing it with a dip we did back in 2017, so we were able to see the comparison, and we were in field April, May. And I think the, the general takeout from the insights, I'll talk you through the key four findings, the, the general uh, headline for it all is that it's a, re- it's a real doubling down on some fundamentals. It's not a case of... Um, things coming left of field that are completely unusual to any marketer that's uh, got their grounding. You know, it's really a reminder of um, the long and the short of it. It's a reminder of the importance of connecting over values. Uh, it's a reminder to not take yourself more seriously than the audience takes you. Um, it's so it's a it's it's kind of a real just reminder of uh, not to move away from the fundamentals when there is so much short term distraction. Of course, what's going on in the short term needs to be fixed as well. Um, you know the, the the driving of cash in in the short term is of course an absolute priority, but it is a reminder that it's it's possibly uh, an echo of that a famous Warren Buffett quote about you see he's been swimming naked when the tide goes out, 
Um, you know, if you haven't got that distinctive position in people's minds, that clear positioning for your brand, you're, you're going to be feeling it extra, extra hard at the moment. And Rob, when you commission research like this uh, in, into women or into a particular subject matter, how do you make sure that you sort of find things that are meaningful without relying on, on stereotypes about women or sort of confirming biases that we already have about a particular gender? Sure. Well, it's in the design of the, the questions. Um, and we just try to make sure that it is o- as open um, as possible and aren't, aren't leading with the questions. Um, so the, the four key data points that are behind the trends that I mentioned, the, the general question of um, do you associate as being the primary influencer of purchases in the household? Pretty open question. 91% um, are currently agreeing um, if you're women um, with that statement, it's up four percentage points versus the two seventeen score. So, despite the popular narrative of men increasingly sharing the mental load, a question as broad and as open as that is only getting more exaggerated in these times. Now, other, other research we've done we've done in other categories shows how women's shopper smarts is more advanced than men's in terms of the um, the rigor that is naturally applied to purchases. I, I know that's possibly a stereotype, but we see it. Um, to be true in the auto category, for example, uh, and and in some others. Um, so it's consistent with what we've found in other studies. And the implication for that, of course, is for brands is just how can you lighten that mental load at this time? You know, it's uh, anxious time anyway with the with the health crisis and now the job crisis. It's particularly acute at the twenty to thirty five end. You know, the ABS data is showing that that end of um, society is feeling the the clip from job losses or underemployment most acutely. Uh, several hundreds of thousands of women have come out of the workforce entirely and aren't in those unemployment or underemployment figures. Um, and we know that in the in the, in most cases that's in order to take the reins of a young family household. So you can see that this mental load is is only increasing, and it, and it does beg the question of brands: How are you helping to provide just a little extra utility? Even a little extra utility goes a long way in this time. And we saw some great examples of that, obviously in peak behaviour disruption, with things like community hour and everything that the supermarkets were doing um, to to help navigate turning comms into almost public service messaging. Um, so that's 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 the one that's one headline. There's the other headline around. Brand trust is really interesting. So again, as I say, it's a doubling down of fundamentals. But we found that um, agreement with the statement, I'm sticking to brands I trust, it's up nine percentage points to 78% amongst women. And in the opposite direction, agreeing with the statement, switching brands for a price promotion is down 16 percentage points. Um, So again, here you see uh, in this risk-averse climate, wanting to stick to brands that you know are going to provide value, are going to deliver on the promise that you know they can deliver on, you're less inclined to take risk at this time. Uh, so again, that's, that's an important thing for brands to understand where they stand on trust relative to the alternatives in the category, um, to quickly work out how to earn it better if you're finding out that you are actually lacking in trust at this time. And if you are in that leadership position on trust, it, it really is time to double down on it um, and take advantage of it. And Claire, um, you obviously also have access to that information, um, which is useful for marketers, but I guess it's also useful for how you talk to your audience as well. So how is something like this informing how you frame the editorial content? It's been really fascinating. So even just knowing, um, you know, where women are spending their money and what what the biggest concerns are for them at the moment, um, it's this really symbiotic relationship between what that research shows and what um, the response to our content shows. So, for example, one of the um, strongest performing stories over the last three months has been uh, we did an interview with a woman who lives in a tiny house and it's one of those really small homes with really really clever genius furniture where you have hardly anything and she has one set of sheets and she's got two kids in this. It's a home that's smaller than a swimming pool. And the response to that story was so overwhelming and and it sits so interestingly with the research because, A, we know that um, spending on things like homewares and that sort of thing is up, so people are just interested in that generally, but also that people's values are changing and that they're less inclined to 
want to live these lives with crazy consumerism, like like that they are actually interested in living perhaps a simpler life. Um, so the response to that has been fascinating, but also um, just we were very careful at using the research in the early stages to not seem insensitive or to talk about issues that clearly weren't a priority for women at that time. So we were quite careful in the lifestyle space um, when the pandemic first started that we didn't want to encourage frivolous spending when we knew that women were actually in a position where they would probably be thinking about money very differently. Um, Whereas stories about the mental load or the impact that um, homeschooling has had on parents and families, that, that is just resonating hugely because parents really want to feel seen and heard and understood. So the research has helped so much in us understanding what our audience wants to consume. And speaking of knowing your audience, a number of other publications have sort of come and gone in the same space as you guys recently. You know, there was News Corp closing the With Her In Mind network, which also saw, you know, Body and Soul and a number of other female-focused brands folded into Stella. What do you think you've been getting right that other publishers haven't been able to tap into? I think that there's a sense of authenticity in um, in Mum Mia's brand, and there's a sense of candidness. I think we're not we're not a brand that then has a subsidiary that's just for women. We're, we're that's our entire brand. Like our entire our entire publication is what women are talking about. It's not it's it's not trying to fill a niche because women fifty percent of the population not a niche turns out. <laughs> um, but but we're. Um, I think our authenticity really shines through. Like where there's a relationship between the people who are creating our content and the people who are consuming it. Like the the people that are writing for our website are also the type of people who are reading it and we so so that authenticity just comes through in everything we do. We're not um pandering or assuming what women are interested in we're deeply embedded in that culture and we have been for over a decade. So I think we've got um, huge experience in in that area and um, I, I think it all comes down to authenticity. If I can um, just add to what Claire's saying as well, the the acceleration to online on-demand entertainment that's gone on through this time as well has obviously played to our strengths. You know, we were already there and um, more has come there. So there's, there's that advantage as well. And I think also the... Uh, the other thing is the the combination of the reach of the Mummy audience. You know, as you know, um, well north of five million women, eighteen plus per month. But the agility that we're able to move for our commercial partners, and it's the combination of those two things. So having the size, but also having the fleet of footness. And over the last few weeks, it's been phenomenal to see what what's been done in that space with the with the team at Mummy turning around things during that peak response phase. You know that everybody went through when you couldn't be on a poster anymore or there wasn't any live sport to be around and marketing dollars were frantically changing course in the short term um, we were turning around campaigns involving video social audio all the rest of it written in in days that would have taken weeks um, so we we um, really showed our agility there that's again it's kind of in, always been in the dna of mamma mia which is why we've adopted these platforms as uh, as the audience has wanted to right from the get-go because of that proximity to the audience. And it goes, it's the same for our commercial partners. And it's been a key part of uh, how we've adapted across all of the, all of the marketing P's you know, over the last couple of months, you know, not just the product and the pricing, but also the way we've promoted ourselves uh, and the, and the way we've turned up uh, when we can't be physically at the, pl- at the point of sale, really, you know, we've obviously spent a lot of time bringing our offering to life in hangouts and, uh, inspo or distraction sessions for agencies and clients. So do you think of yourselves, uh, I might start with you, Claire, as a podcaster or a publisher? How do you define yourselves now that you've got such an extensive audio network, bigger than, you know, some actual audio networks? (laughs) That's true. I mean, I personally see us as um, a publisher that's really multidimensional and we've got all these different areas. So definitely podcasts is an absolutely huge area of what we do, but um, so is our written content, so is our video. Um, and uh, but, but podcast has been particularly interesting over this time um, in that our audience 
has grown from, um, I think it was from February to March, our listenership of two of our biggest shows grew by 30%. Um, so clearly this time has lent itself to growth in the podcast space. And um, we think it's just going to get bigger and bigger, but we definitely see it as um, kind of a very major um part of of what we do more broadly but it still follows the same principles that um that our site has followed and um all our content follows and rob i'll bring you in although i think both of you might have a point of view on, on this one um to, to claire's point on the authenticity of the brand mm. you know um as it happens mamma mia has followed quite a similar lifespan to mumbrella so i've always followed the journey quite well you know i remember you know, doing a video interview with Mia Friedman, it must be more than a decade ago now in the very early days when mainly I was interviewing her about her book and this, you know, maybe she was just starting a blog at the time was where it was at. Um, A lot of that authenticity has come as Mia's vision, I suppose. Um, How, how do you address that as a, as a marketing challenge? Because I, I presume Rob, you, you don't always want the brand to be too associated with the founder. Sure. When we did our work to um, really define internally, and it's not something obviously we, we, we sort of disclose externally all of the precise words within our positioning and how we define the, the brand for ourselves internally. But the the founder's DNA is obviously a key input into that process of crystallizing what it is that needs to endure. But it isn't, it, as you say, it can't ride on an individual person. It's clearly not scalable. So, but there's there are some... Um, fantastically rich insights that come from just seeing what Mia did in those early days, right? And the authenticity that Claire talks about and the frankness and the lack of artifice um, that came from being a female founder back then on the couch. Um, You know, even though uh, technically things have advanced a hell of a lot from them, we're really keen to not lose uh, that candidness. And particularly when there there is so much that's kind of uh, that, that's contrived or um you know uh, show really in in the social culture that we're surrounded by i think it really has a place that or that that candidness and and claire how do you navigate uh the shadow of of mia as editor i know that when i uh got got this job i would go out and tell people i was the editor of mumbrella and they would always say to me what's it like to work with mia friedman then i'd have <laughs> to spend 10 minutes explaining that no mumbrella is not mama mia and then when they worked out who i was they'd say well what's it like working with tim burrows so do you feel like uh you can effectively have a voice and lead a publication when it is uh so intrinsically linked in people's minds with, you know, the the personality and, and the persona that is Mia. Definitely. And, and I think a big part of that is being able to show the the diversity of what we do and the diverse people who do it. So I hope that in the last um, you know, particularly say five years that um that I've been with the business, I know that even when I came into Mum Mia, I didn't necessarily think of it as kind of Mia Friedman's business because the brand had already um, taken on that identity of being associated with pop culture and recaps and that sort of thing. And I know that um, when I speak to people, they are fascinated by it's like a cult of personality, like who is this Mia Friedman and they, they want to know kind of all of that. But I think people do understand that it's not the point where she's sitting at the computer writing all the content anymore. She's not editing it anymore. And, um, and that that's how a lot of businesses work that while you've got a founder, you then have, um, a team who works quite, um, independently from that. And yes, they adopt the values and the, um, and the goals of the organization, but a lot of, um, a lot of what they do is very separate and that, um, that, you know, we've got, we've got people who, have incredibly different life experiences to you know what our founder has had and incredibly different perspectives and I hope that the website reflects that that we have a complete diversity that isn't reflective of one kind of person and uh Rob I I changing the subject ever so slightly a question about your previous role you managed six years in the Foxtel marketing team now that's a long stint for any marketer but it's very long stint for a marketer at Foxtel. We often discuss at Mumbrella the high turnover in marketers at Foxtel. 
how did you hang in there for so long? I think I, I think I did develop my resilience to another level. Uh, I, I love the the space of commercial creativity and and uh, you know Foxtel, Foxtel Group, Foxtel Now, the the collection of things going on within it is an incredible crossroads of the industry within Australia. So coming from the UK, I was at ITV previously. It was it had a lot of upside in terms of the collaboration across the industry. And Rob, how would you describe the the culture at Foxtel versus the culture at Mamma Mia? Well, look, um, being a guy in a women's media brand, obviously it was a very intentional choice. Uh, you know, when, when I was fortunate to have the opportunity to join Mamma Mia, I think the only thing I'll say is that I was uh, I, I particularly have enjoyed the the media footprint and the purpose and the and the candidness that's everything about brand Mamma Mia, which firmly plants us now here in June 2020. And there's no sense of, you know, a pullback to better days in the past. Uh, that's, that's pretty philosophically, I'll say, I would suggest is the, uh, the major difference that I experience. All right, Rob Farmer and Claire Stevens from Mamma Mia, thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Thank Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, you have just under two weeks to get your entries together for the 2020 Mumbrella Awards before prices go up. Each year, the Mumbrella Awards shine a spotlight on the top performers in Australia and New Zealand's media and marketing landscape. With a total of 30 categories on offer, show the entire industry just what sets you apart from the rest. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash awards for more information. That is it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.